Hello and welcome to the post-Spanish Grand Prix F1 Nation podcast. And I am Damon Hill and I'm joined by the beautiful Natalie Pinkham and also the beautiful Tom Clarkson. Well, good morning, Damon. Good morning, TC. How are you? I'm very well. Great to see you guys. Is that it? That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's it. He's got nothing left, has he, Damon? He's exhausted no. from the weekend. He works very hard and he's away and he's missing his uh, wedding anniversary oh, so he's feeling sorry. bad and he's a bad father he's a bad you know, husband and he's he's in locked in a hotel room he's so bad uh, <laughs> such a positive way to start the pod guys <laughs> yeah thanks you're making me feel really good yes I am still in Barcelona uh, I've got a nice view I'm looking out of my hotel window at the Mediterranean uh, but it's very cloudy. I'm assuming it's cold. I don't know. I haven't been outside yet. And neither are you going to because you're stuck. You're quarantined. And I think that's just teasing having a view like that. You can look, but you can't touch. Oh, pinks. The last two weeks, I've been in fantastic places. I've been in the Algarve. I've been on the Mediterranean. And I haven't left my hotel in either place. <laughs> oh. What have you guys been up to? Well, I've been down in Dartmouth, which is very nice. Family weekend away. Uh, whacking some golf balls into a valley as well, badly. Uh, Damon, I wanted to know, actually, how many golf balls is it acceptable to lose in a round? Uh, one. What? That, yeah, I would say mostly professional golfers try not to lose any <laughs> golf balls. And the rest of us, if we lose one or two... That's uh, not too I good. did three off the first tee. Yeah, okay. Well, that's okay. That's not bad. Oh, three off the first tee? Yeah. Oh, right. That is, that's <laughs> quite serious. Yeah. <laughs> is, the most important thing, Natalie, is not to hurt anybody. But, right, that's true. That's true. I'm going to shoehorn a segue back into F1. Go here, on. Because we're talking about golf. And we should. He did ask what we were up to. Yeah. And you, said, you actually guessed that I would be the last podcast, which I wasn't involved with. You guessed I'd be hitting golf balls. I was listening to the podcast on the driving range <laughs> with my ear, with my AirPods in, and listening to that fabulous French uh, journalist. So name I forgot, but Tom, he was fantastic, wasn't he? Gave us a bit of insight there. Julian Billot, uh, does F1 Nation improve your golf? Is this a selling point of the pod? It, yeah, well, I, th I think I, it did actually. It sort of distracted me, but I mean, this is we're digressing again, digressing off of the main subject, which is of course our amazing sport, Formula One. Lights out and away we go. And I think Verstappen got a slightly better start than Lewis Hamilton. Verstappen goes into turn one and goes past the Mercedes. Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, they are absolutely flying. Oh, he's pitting. Oh, he's so, wow. Mercedes committing then to the two-stop strategy and pitting right now. Currently 22 seconds. We've done it before. Oh, I don't see how we're going to make it to the end. Hamilton goes around the outside at turn one and the charge is complete and it's the chequered flag as the winner of the Spanish Grand Prix for Lewis Hamilton. Get in there Lewis, what a great drive man. Great job with the strategy, yeah, definitely have to work for it but that's great, absolutely great. Lewis Hamilton, what, what about that? I mean, you know, 100 pole positions. The most talented man to have walked the earth. Who said that? Yeah, that's what I said. That was a great quote. I thought I'm gonna. I, I like to compete with uh, um, with the hyperbole, so I I think I won that one. Um, <laughs> I made it for those who are unaware. I tweeted a rather stupendous tweet about Lewis Hamilton's hundred pole position, hundredth pole position, and I said he's he's the most talented person. You are, I said you do realise, of course, you're 
you're looking at one of the most talented people ever to have walked the earth. And of course, in a racing car, he is. I mean, who can deny that? I mean, it is unbelievable. Oh, I, I, listen, I totally agree. When you put it into context, when you think about those 100 poles and you consider the great Michael Schumacher only... I say in inverted commas, managed 68, and Senna 65. And then the closest within Lewis's field only managed, has only managed, you know, he can still add to it because he's still racing, 57, Sebastian Vettel. It just makes you realise the astonishing achievement that we are witnessing. And I think we will look back in many years' time and tell our grandchildren and great-grandchildren how lucky we were to have been there at the time. Yeah, Damon, Lewis replied to your tweet in the post-race press conference yesterday. And now, Tom, who put that question? Did you did you pop that question to him? Because I was a bit shocked to read that this morning. I didn't put it to him. But what did amuse me is that he didn't actually deny it. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't deny it. He didn't modestly He said, go, thank you, Damon. And you were, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he just accepted it. Just one for, for Lewis. Uh, yesterday... Uh, Damon Hill um, tweeted about you that you're one of the most talented people to have ever walked the earth. Well, firstly, I I, um, I saw that yesterday, and I felt so much gratitude um, to to Damon. You know, because I remember growing up watching Damon and having, as I do now, so much respect for him. And uh, I remember rooting for him. You know, as a Brit, you know, wanting him to to succeed, even when he didn't have um, a great car or a good team. So it's it's definitely it's, it's definitely humbling when you you see people that you've admired, you've watched and, and grown up, um, kind of taking inspiration from or or whatever it may be, and having them say respectful things and positive things like that. That's that's uh, that's an amazing moment when that happens. He's in his majesty at the moment, I think. We're seeing Lewis totally in command of his his art. And he's enjoying it so much. I love... I mean, listen, whenever you talk to him in the pen afterwards, it's always easy to interview him when he's won because he's beaming. And it's it's, it's harder when he's sort of beating himself up or frustrated with his weekend. But he's just got such a spring in his step. He was able to compliment Max Verstappen on his great start. I mean, he did also add that he was perhaps hanging back slightly to give Bottas a toe. But the bottom line is he's loving this battle, isn't he? It's bringing out the very best in him. I, I completely agree. I think he's, he need, he's needed this for a long time. He's needed someone to come to him. It's like Goliath, that story of Goliath, isn't it? You know, he stands there beating his chest going, right, who is going to kind of tackle me? You know, who's going to take me on? The great champions need someone they can spar with, someone they can actually measure themselves against. And Max has obviously been much exalted and, and praised and, and I think, you know, Jensen in, in, our, in our coverage on Sky, he did say that he thought that Max was more naturally talented. And I think all these things just give Lewis more satisfaction when he prevails. So the harder you, you push this guy, I don't think, I think Lewis has been on tick over for a long time. And I think it's been too easy. And that's why he hasn't got the recognition, I think, that he deserves. And I think this year, Max has basically... He's taken the challenge, but he's also shown that it's not as easy as it looks when you get to the sharp end. He was, was, of course, on the back foot 
at the start with Verstappen making such a great start and then able to fight back for that win. He talked about it being a gamble to to go for that bold strategy, you know, the extra pit stop. I don't know if gamble is quite the right word because I think there's so much respect and trust within the team. You can make those kind of decisions when you truly trust your driver. It doesn't feel like you're taking a risk. Yeah. And he, I love the way he, he sort of came on and, and said, I don't think, the, you know, at, at some point, I don't think these tyres are going to get to the end. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Pete Mornington said, um, he said, oh, I think they'll be better than Max's. <laughs> that was brilliant. Red Bull, I think, will be scratching their heads about that race because we've seen enough of these two cars this year to know a little bit of their strengths and weaknesses. The Red Bull uses up its rear tyres more than the Mercedes. The Mercedes is easier on its tyres, both front and rear. So it was odd that it was Red Bull going for the one-stop strategy yesterday in the Grand Prix. And in a way, they were on the back foot right from the start of the weekend because they didn't give themselves another set of medium tyres in the race because they used them all up beforehand. So they were kind of forced down a route that they really didn't want to go on. And they even made it harder for themselves by using a lower downforce rear wing. They ran a high downforce wing in Friday practice and decided to take it off because they thought they'd be sitting ducks down that long pit straight. And so they took it off and, and ran less rear wing. But of course, that makes the rear tire deg even worse so they kind of created a situation that played into mercedes hands so yes mercedes were brilliant but i think red bull made it a little bit easier for them than they would like to have done agree yeah i think i i think we're going to just talk about this a little bit because it's important because it's the world it is the world championship we're looking at here we're looking at the battle and it's evolved into more than just a battle between drivers. It really is an interesting battle between the two teams and the way they approach it. There's no doubt now that you've got backup drivers. You've got Bottas and you've got uh, Perez now. And Perez has got to, you know, lift his game a little bit to help Red Bull out of the situation because there was a tactically that he could have been more useful if he'd qualified further up. So Red Bull will be looking at their weaknesses. But I think that will come. That will come yeah. soon. No, no, He's I, not quite I, comfortable totally in the faith- car yet, is he? I mean... To still no. pull it up to P5 was, was, you know, a strong result for him. But you're right, it, it has to come soon. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm a big Perez fan and he'll get there. But it is traditionally, it's harder in the Red Bull team for the, the not lead driver to match Max. So we'll see him make his progress. But we're, what, we, what, what we're watching is this tactical battle. And it's interesting how the second drivers are key to that battle as well and how the teams are deploying these tactics. So yesterday's race was a pure tactical race. It was va- it was fascinating from that point of view. So Damon, in your mind, could Red Bull have done anything differently? Uh, I, I want to understand this mindset that, you know, ultimately, if Max had pitted sooner or indeed again, mm. is it this idea of just never surrendering track position, particularly in a circuit like Barcelona? I mean, there was a couple of things to mention. One, one was there was a safety car. Sonoda's car broke down. They had to, they, so that basically gave them extra length on their first stint, didn't it? So the strategy that they had had to include the uh, taking into calculation the extra thing. So Lewis went longer on his first stint. Uh, now, could Max have basically gone for the, the two-stop? You know, if he'd come in that bit earlier, he might have been better to go because he'd just basically given himself a massively long middle stint. And that was that was always on paper looking a bit doubtful. What do you think, Tom? What Mercedes thought Red Bull 
we're going to pull the trigger first on a two-stop strategy. They thought they, that Red Bull were going to go for a short middle stint on the soft tyre. Remember, they didn't have two sets of the medium. They thought they'd do a, a short middle stint on the soft and then put the, the medium on at the end. Mm. And so that when, when they didn't do it, didn't do it, they thought, right, we're going to do it. And so they, they ended up pulling the trigger first. But it all smacks a little bit of Red Bull being a little bit championship battle rusty, yeah. I think. They haven't done it since 2013 and the relentless pressure that comes with a championship i think you do forget how to do it don't you i mean do you damon you've been there i, I think they looked a little bit flat-footed actually to be honest red bull you're right i would say but they will go w away and they will be really hard on themselves as they always are and they'll but i mean i'm quite surprised a little bit surprised by max's equilibrium he seems either he's putting a very good act on it or underneath he is extremely upset because i think you know he knows tight the clock is ticking he knows this is a slim chance, but it's a chance of a championship and it's slipping away already. So I'm quite surprised by his equilibrium uh, in, when you when you hear him talking. You know, he's not he's saying it's not all that, you know, I'm not I'm not too unhappy with the situation. He must be. Surely he is. 14 points is, is a chunk, you know, and when every point counts and you can tell that because they're all desperate for that fastest lap, aren't they? Yeah. Tom, I'm interested to know how the dynamic is evolving, changing, if you like, between Max and Lewis, particularly after... This weekend just gone. Obviously, Damon and I weren't there, but uh, let us know what you made of it. I think it's turned up a notch, actually, Pinks. Throw our minds back seven days to Portugal. Lewis has just won the race. Max is second. They come into the press conference room and there's a, there's a stall in the middle of the room. And Lewis sort of drapes himself, lying on his back over this stall just to stretch his, his back after the race. And Max is sort of wanting to come over and help him stretch. And it's all very, uh, you know, it's wonderful behind the scenes chance to see their relationship up close. And it was all very easy after that race. Fast forward seven days to, to yesterday in the Spanish Grand Prix, much more of an edge in the room. And I think it had various, uh, there were various um, trigger points for that. One is turn one for the second time in three races, Max has really lent on Lewis at turn one and Lewis has had to take avoiding action to stop them colliding. And I think uh, when Lewis was saying after the race, I learned a lot about the way Max was driving. I think that was direct reference to what happened at turn one in that this guy is, is, is so ruthless and he's a total pain in the ass. Um, but it also just everything about, there was just, they wouldn't, they weren't looking at each other. They, they were just much more of an edge. And it's like, okay, we're four races in. Yes, there's still 19 to go, but suddenly this is now, we're getting it, we're getting into the meat and veg of this championship now. And it's, uh, with every race that's rolling past, the gap is getting a little bigger and, and it's just wonderful to see this edge, but there's definitely more of an edge now. That would be my take. Have you seen it as well, Pinks? I mean, I haven't been there for the last two races, so it is difficult. The overriding feeling I've always got is is the respect and is the fact that, that Lewis is just loving the challenge that Max is bringing. And Max, I feel, has matured a lot recently his home life is settled he's got great support he's got a quicker car he's ticking lots of boxes in terms of being in the right headspace to take on this championship but he just seems very calm I mean I don't know I, I think there's mutual respect but you're right probably the competition will just start cranking up all the more and um, frustrations may start to come in but right now I think that they just respect each other too much for there ever to be a fallout. And you'll play this back to me and it won't age well in three races time when they're fisticuffs in the pen. 
I don't think there'll be that. There is the respect. I just definitely sense it just with each race that's rolling by, it means a little more. I'm sure. Yeah. And when Max continually puts Lewis off the track at turn one, it's getting it's getting bloody annoying for him, I think. Yeah, but exciting for us. I was going to say, listening to you talking, about it made me think about how Nico beat Lewis. Mm. And the, only, the way Nico beat Lewis was to yeah. needle him. And to, yeah, and make yeah. life unpleasant. And Lewis doesn't like that. He likes everything to be nice and sweet. And, you know, I, I think Lewis is a lot tougher and more experienced now. But um, I think that Max doesn't look to me like he's he's playing games out of the car. I mean, he definitely is aggressive on in the car. And the, and the, the car they get, they've got now gets off the line brilliantly. So he's, Lewis, Mercedes will be definitely not counting on getting to the corner first even if they're on pole and max is second but he muscled through on lap one didn't he 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 put his car in a compromised position lewis could have collided with him he had to duck out of it but he was that was like a punch to the gut wasn't it on the first lap but of course lewis got him in the long run I wanted to move on to to Bottas and didn't want to yield to Hamilton, ultimately costing Lewis a second and a half. That didn't matter in the whole scheme of things. But it was just quite an interesting moment, wasn't it? Um, He said after the race that he he could have led him by sooner, but he was focusing on his own race. And Damon, you know, I can only imagine just how gutting it is as a racer to have to move over for your teammate. It It just must feel all wrong nobody likes to hear that the guy behind you is faster you know your teammate is faster all those things are just the worst thing you want to have on the radio and also it's the worst thing his engineer wants to have to tell him you know because they they feel crestfallen too they don't they don't want to tell their driver sorry you know mate you're going to have to accept a second place here but he cost lewis nearly a second if if it had come down to a last lap battle you know that that second was really valuable i would i I watched that bit and i thought toto must be absolutely fuming at bottas after this but he he did (laughs) he looked a bit um what's the word um sort of contrite after the race didn't he bottas he didn't look uh, toto must understand mustn't he i mean you know lewis was quick to say afterwards we are the best of teammates well it's okay to say that now because it didn't ultimately cost you the win but um it does just about work, doesn't it? Hmm. I don't think it was too bad for Bottas. He'd lost so much time behind Leclerc in that first stint of the race. I think he knew that he was no longer in the running. I think if if he'd been running in in Lewis's wheel tracks for that first stint and then Lewis, they'd done a different thing with Lewis uh, strategy-wise, that would have been harder. But I feel in his mind his race was gone anyway uh, because of that first stint. And do you feel like he thinks his season's gone already? He seems incredibly flat at the moment. I read something today that he's lost more points to Lewis already in the first four races than Vettel did in the whole of 2016, something like 47 points. But let's not forget, Pinks, that this is Lewis's best ever start to a Formula One season. This is the closest it's been in terms of performance. And yet those 94 points from four races is the greatest talent he's had it's extraordinary wow that really no it is i think that's a that's a complete you know that's a that's a hoisting a flag up a pole isn't it i mean this is he has decided he's not going to do what he normally does which is kind of gently through the season build up some points and then press on uh just after the summer break to get it uh, in the bag so he can then uh, knock off before winter and go on holiday you know (laughs) that's normally what he does (laughs) 
So it looks like he's gonna he's going for the kill now. Uh, and, yeah, but you that's know. what that's he's been able to get away with doing that in the past, as you say. And now he has to raise his game. Yeah. Guys, we're seeing Mercedes at the peak of their powers. It's something that I don't, I'm not sure we've seen in the hybrid era because it's been such an intra-team battle among their drivers. In a way, this is the first time that we're seeing, you know, Mercedes at 100%. We had Paddy Lowe on uh, the Beyond the Grid podcast the other day, and he was saying that back in 2014, they were having to do things like turn down the engine because they were so far ahead of the opposition. They thought that if they gave it full beans, people would just change the regs to slow them down. So they were having to do all those little silly little tricks, really, to make it seem closer than it was. Whereas now we're seeing Mercedes all guns blazing and it's it's something it's it's a marvel it's it's something to behold i got a chance to ask toto when i was laughed out i can't remember what race it was no it was it was romania the um imola race and i was going to ask him a long question but we had a commercial break coming up so i couldn't i couldn't get the whole question out but i asked him i said i how do you deal with you know how is the team dealing with fatigue because you've been at the sharp end for so long you know we've seen people leaving but this is this is incredible the way they've responded because the start of the season it looked like you know, they were pulling their hair out and it was all you know doom and gloom but there's no way they haven't responded brilliantly and, and Lewis has been you know kicking them up the backside in a nice way and saying come on guys we need a bit more and then he thanked him after the race didn't he in there very noticeably after the Spanish Grand Prix so but, but and Bottas was hit before this race with with questions about whether or not he'd be there all season and I think Ooh, Toto I had know. to come out so he's, you know Bottas is is getting a, you know it's the worst thing in the world mm. to be second to the best driver in the world and I and I have to say having raced against Michael Schumacher Although I'd be coming second and sometimes winning races basically I was the first guy to get beaten by Michael Schumacher so I got all the you know rubbish that gets thrown at you if you get beaten and and he's getting it and it's it's hard because his performance is of the very highest standard it just isn't up to lewis's standard i feel so sorry for him really because he's doing a brilliant job now now hang on one second tc we had this conversation at the weekend uh me and my mate and we were talking about how we feel sorry for certain drivers and then we go hang on a minute do we really feel sorry for them they are at the pinnacle of motorsport living the dream doing the ultimate job in the world and getting paid tens of millions to do so so don't feel too sorry for them well on that level you're bang on right but it's just really awkward isn't it when you're just being questioned the whole time and quite bluntly. But isn't that just part of it, Damon? Isn't that just part of the sport? Isn't that part of any industry when you're at the very top? I, I think it's a byproduct of, of what we're doing now. It's a byproduct of the media and the relentless uh, hunger for some sort of story or something to be to be writing about. So in a, in a, you, with my day, it wasn't, uh, we didn't have internet and all the rest of it. Well, we had internet, but we didn't have uh, social media. So. <laughs> Not that old. <laughs> we, had, we, had we had electricity, you know, and <laughs> it would just come Carry out of gas. Right? But we had you know, the the press conference. And now the press conference, as Tom knows full well, goes on all day with every driver. And, oh, my God, the questions these drivers have to put up with time and time again. And, you know, feeling sorry for them, you're right. You know, you can't feel sorry for someone. who It's a cost, it's a price, it's what they're paid to do. But there comes a point where they're human beings and, you know, after a bit, you're just being mean yeah. to someone, aren't you? If you keep asking them horrible questions. And it's so blunt, the questioning mm -hmm. now, because no one is in the room. It's all done via Zoom. And Valtteri, will you be at Mercedes mm. next year? 
How can mm. he answer that? I hope to be there next year. I'm going as hard as I can. I've just had pole last weekend yeah. in Portugal. And he should just say, listen, I'm not asking. I'm not asking. If you're going to ask me whether I'm going to be here, then I'm not going to answer the question. And you'll just, we'll go on to the next question. So just, you can't yeah. do that. You can't say that. You can't say I'm not going to answer that. Yes, you can. That just gives, you're just feeding raw, you're just feeding meat to the lions then, aren't you? I, I remember once there was um, obviously lots of lovely things being said about the great Murray Walker, but he used to come to me with the, the BBC and or t- ITV or whatever it was. And um, he'd come and ask me questions after I'd lost and been beaten by Michael Schumacher. And I wanted to clock him, <laughs> you know, and I was thinking, you know, it's just like I'm admitting to wanting to hit <laughs> an old man, a nice old man. You know, that's how you kind of, he has to ask the question. Yeah. People want to know. He has to ask the question, but he asked it in such a you know lovely way that you didn't get, you know, but I didn't like the question at all no. there's no question about that it's it can be it's a tough business to be in the spotlight but they're not public servants you know it, you can pound a politician yeah but these people aren't necessarily answerable to the journalists they don't have to answer their questions the journal they don't work for the journalists they work for the team yeah but there was yeah. a, a, an interesting subplot to all this is that i think there were people within mercedes who think uh, <laughs> who think that red bull are stirring it and and placing those questions oh, really? with journalists yeah yeah just to sort of red bull's efforts to try and destabilize mercedes i don't know if that's true but yes you do i know that certainly that- <laughs> come on you you live in the <laughs> press office ah <laughs> uh, what about that i mean you know what about the weaving because there were some interesting moves i thought and and a year ago i watched the spanish grand prix and i i spoke to ross braun and i said listen are you concerned about the closing speed of these cars with with a high downfall circuit and the DRS because what happens is you've got a high wing and you've got a long straight and once you open that DRS the thing catapults forward and accelerates past these cars and it's going way faster than the car it's overtaking and then this year again we saw some pretty close calls I thought um, late moves but of course the driver in front has got a car approaching it at such an increased speed because of the DRS and it, I think it, it, I, it was worrying and I think there were a couple of moves I saw and I just thought, maybe it's a good thing we don't have spectators down at the first corner because... Well, a bit like know, my golf ball situation. Very like that, yes. Yeah, it was, they're much more expensive, these cars, than golf balls. but And potentially more damaging. Yeah, and there's a person sitting inside of one. Yes, exactly. Damon, it's, it's a sort of karting mentality, isn't it? I think uh, when you're karting, these guys are all weaving all over the road, do anything to keep the guy behind. And uh, and it needs to be knocked out of them by the time they get to Formula One, doesn't it? I think it's a specific problem related to the DRS, in actual fact. I think it's because of the acceleration due to the DRS being opened and then getting in the toe. The car behind is passing at such a much higher rate and it's nearly always just before the braking zone. So it's maximum speed. And if one guy hits the braking zone, you know, just before the person is has judged it. And we saw, obviously, a great move with Carlos Saints, who was approaching his old teammate, and he kind of guessed what Lando was going to do. Lando, classically, late-minute jink to the right mm. to try and block off the right, but, you know, Carlos had to quickly adjust himself. Mm. A fraction of a second wrong, and then that's a car launched over the top yeah. of another. And if you, if you look at the Indy, you know, racing at 200 miles an hour all the time, that is verboten, you know, last minute moves like that uh, on a car going that fast is is not what you do in Indi- Indianapolis. And these guys are going Indianapolis speeds now. But how much of a purist are you guys? I mean, do we like DRS? Are we saying that actually we think we should do away with DRS for safety reasons or? I don't like DRS. I thought maybe at first it was a kind of neat gadget to, to have it, but 
I have to say, I don't, I don't like it. I think what they need to do is increase braking distances. It would have made for a really exciting end to that race yesterday without DRS, because it would have been that much harder for Hamilton to get past, wouldn't it? Exactly. It was was a piece. I mean, Max didn't even try to defend, did he? He just sat there and just knew it was over. And again, I think a lot of it does come down to trust. And I think the reason it worked for Sainz and Norris is because there is an innate understanding between them. But my heart was absolutely in my mouth. I mean, it was it was a moment, wasn't it? Okay, guys, you obviously love podcasts and you love our podcast, but there's another podcast coming. It's called F1 On The Edge. And it's about all the stories that make up this incredible sport. And here's a little clip for you to get a little bit of a taste for it. In Formula One, everything is on the edge. Being on the edge is where you want to live in any race car. Mystery, danger, secrets, fights. On and off the racetrack, there's drama at every turn. Adrenaline was pumping like you can't believe. This is the bombshell that's going to go off. F1 On The Edge, a podcast telling incredible true Formula One stories. Like what really happened to a $300,000 diamond lost in a crash during the Monaco Grand Prix. It's somewhere. It can't just have disappeared. Somebody knows where this is. I think enough time has passed now for me to confess. Plus, a legendary champion kidnapped by rebels. Three operatives. One has the getaway car. One of them pulls a gun and says, do what we say. Nothing will happen to you. And the Formula One icon enraged by a rookie. Adam Senna appears at the door. And all of a sudden... He just launched himself across the room and started hitting Eddie. Drivers, F1 insiders and other eyewitnesses will tell these stories and more like you've never heard before. F1 on the Edge, a Spotify original podcast series produced by Formula One. Follow F1 on the Edge and listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Listen to episode one. Monaco's Lost Diamond, from Wednesday the 19th of May. I want to talk actually about uh, some improved performances on the grid this weekend. Um, Charles Leclerc, I thought, had an incredible weekend, a real step forward for Ferrari. And I think that uh, improvement in quali pace was then crucially translated over to the race, which often hasn't happened in 2020, for example. But um, real spring in his step. I mean, uh, what are your thoughts, Damon, on uh, how he's developing as a driver? Well, I don't think he's developing so much as kind of cementing what we knew or we we thought we knew about uh, Charles Leclerc. He is a top driver and his race pace is fantastic as well and he's qualifying well um, probably slightly better than the car you know I think you have to say his performances in qualifying have been uh, on occasions exceptional was it um, was it Imola or was it Portugal I can't remember where he qualified uh, anyway you know I think he's oh it's, it was it was actually Bahrain wasn't it where he qualified where people, people didn't expect the, the car to be. Damon, I don't understand this qualifying better than the car. How, how can you do that? But he you, does. He does. He can't but he do does. That, and he? I think he did it all through last year as well. He outperformed the car dragged the car to places that we didn't expect and it and and that point was emphasized all the more when you saw where Vettel qualified all through last year don't don't get all pedantic with me tom you know what i mean you know these guys <laughs> they pull out something yes. it's, okay what I'm we should you, say Damon. is 
Yeah. Well, I, th- I think what we should say is from their own performance point of standards, they got absolutely 100% out of themselves and they dragged the car along with them to do it. And, and I think Senna was one of those. You gave a bad car to Senna and he'd just rag it to, you know, the last drop out of it. And he beat the car, you know. So there are some drivers who kind of stay within that, the boundary of the car a little bit. And, and that's why Charles Leclerc is clearly a world champion in waiting. But, um, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that Carlos uh, Saints is not, because uh, I think he's done brilliantly well as well to slot in there and uh, and put some pressure on and, and, and perform well. And it seemed that McLaren were quite surprised at the pace of the Ferrari, that actually it was, for at least this weekend, just gone. It was uh, clearly the third fastest car on the grid that's the point isn't it pinks i think is that yes charles leclerc got the maximum out of it in qualifying which we've seen him do many times before but then the race pace of the car is just not there because it's been burning through its rear tires whereas the race pace was more in keeping with the qualifying Mm. pace at barcelona so suddenly they did take a step forward and i think it is and it is meaningful isn't it because barcelona has always set the tone in the mm. past for the rest of the season they always say if you have a car that's quick around barcelona you're going to go well pretty much everywhere but barcelona it's like being on a wind tunnel the cars are constantly cornering and a similar on a you know one arc and they're always in you know the aero zone so basically it, it for us it's a, it's not a good track for Formula One cars. For motorbikes, it's different because they can get close to a car and a, a bike in a corner, not a car. <laughs> the, the the only thing I would say to counter that is that it is a demanding circuit that's got a bit of everything. So if you do do well there, no, Damon's shaking his head. I feel as if Ferrari um, can take real heart from the progress they made at Barcelona because then perhaps. That can be proven out, borne out at different circuits as well. I don't know how many laps I've done around Barcelona. Honestly, I haven't. I know how many I've done. Zero. I know. Actually, I did one without Davidson, but I wasn't driving. Mm. It's not a circuit where you can, as a driver, extract a lot. That's the point. It's pretty much set by the car's performance. The car is the limit. You know, clearly there's drivers who are really, really good. And, and having to manage tyres and stuff like that, their talent will make a difference. And, and they, that will always be the case. But more more than anything, it's a circuit that just lim- is limited by the car's performance. What you learn most about at Barcelona now is the slow corner speed of the cars because turn three, that long right-hander, easy flat. The cars are producing so much grip. Then if turn nine is easy flat. So actually, the only corners where you're making a difference now is through all the slow stuff. So it's a really good indicator for Monaco. And Mercedes were unbelievably fast through sector three. So they're going to look really good in Monaco, probably. But So it's interesting. From an engineer's perspective, they're looking at the slow corner pace of the car around Barcelona, despite the number of high-speed corners. It's all a bit of a contradiction. but We saw a bit of a tide turn, didn't we, with Lando uh, dominating Ricardo. That was a, you know, a bit of a bounce back for Daniel Ricardo. Yeah, and he needed it, didn't he? His best weekend for McLaren, yeah. Feels like he's got his mojo back. I mean, I think the, the thing is, I'm not sure his mojo ever really went. He obviously had that massively disappointing quality last time out. Um, and then he needed to come back from that fast. But when you look at the stats, he's still three to one out qualified Lando. His first four races at a team. I mean, that's really impressive when you consider how much you do, do need to adapt, as we've talked about before on this podcast, when you join a new team. And I think it was nice for him in a way that, McLaren made a bit of a mess of qualifying they've completely held their hand up but you know he didn't get his final run in Q3 because they timed it wrong and he just didn't cross the line in time so 
you know, yes, he's come in for a bit of criticism recently. Why, why, why are you taking so long to get up to speed? Blah, blah, blah. But actually, when the team drops the ball as well, I feel he, he's probably thinking, all right, we've all had our moments. Let's now move on together. It's a sort of, this might be that the line in the sand for him where he, he, he really comes good and he loves Monaco, doesn't he? So it might be the place where he really um, pushes the distance on his teammate. Well, there's a question for you, Damon. He loves Monaco. How much does it matter to a, a driver when you, it's almost self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you, you've gone well there before, therefore you're boosted psychologically before you turn up there again and therefore you can repeat the feat. I think there's a correlation between how much a person loves the kind of circuit and how well they do there. I think some people, for whatever reason, love Monaco and go really well there. Um, I would say Brundle went well at Monaco. He performed, even despite having a massive shunt there and permanently damaging his ankles, I think he did well there. And Lacey was always a, a Monaco. He loved it. You know, Senna clearly loved it. Um, certain types of driver take to this place. And we saw we saw Lacey leading the race in uh, uh, Villeneuve's Ferrari, didn't we, in the, in the classic uh, Monaco recently and getting stuffed into the wall by the bloke behind him. But, uh, you know, he clearly was loving it, you know, and, uh, you know, years have gone by. But I'm not sure Lewis loves Monaco. That is going to be interesting next week. I would say Max is probably slightly got the edge going into that race and yes you're right Daniel Ricciardo fantastic takes to it we'll, we'll go well there again yeah what kind of driver goes well at Monaco though Mick Ackerman shall we say that Mick as well Rubens Barrichello used to go well I think what they what they're good at is getting the car to move on the throttle from the apex to the exit because you need to get that bit right you can barrel in Barreling in is quite, it's really have to be careful going in to the corners because you get the going in bit wrong and then the out bit is, is ding, basically a massive great prang. I mean, one of the most incredible laps I've seen around there was Roberto Kubica's qualifying laps. Absolutely terrifying through the chicane section uh, to watch. Really, really committed. But um, Robert, Robert Kubica. Um, but um, you know, he's not Roberto, is he? I keep calling him Roberto. Roberto Moreno. Like like no, no, no. But I think that these guys are really good at, uh, and maybe it's a karting thing. I'm sure, if, in fact, it's a karting thing. It's, it's about that business of getting the car to go in and just get it tweaked at, before the apex so they can get on the power early. Oh, I just clap then. That's me clapping. And it's a confidence thing, isn't it? You get it right once, you get it right again, and you build and you build and and, and you bed in over the weekend and that confidence grows through the practice sessions. And, and actually, I find it quite interesting when we're talking about Max, because I think that initially, certainly early in his career, Monaco... You know, he wobbled a bit there, didn't he? He made mistake. He made a mistake in exactly the same place that he had done the year before in a practice session. So I think something gets into into your mind, into your psyche. Um, but obviously, Max is over that now. But it's um, it's, it's it's kind of unique in that respect, isn't it? Christ, if, can you imagine going straight on at uh, at um, the first corner, Saint Devot? I mean, is that was a big shunt, wasn't it? So you know, Max is had a few big dings. But uh, I think he's made of tough stuff, so I don't think that'll hold him back too much. Ah, uh, now Yuki Sonoda. I mean, he is my still my favourite subject of every race weekend. But you feel like um, it's a very steep learning curve that he's climbing up and slipping down a few times, and to blame your team. And to be that vocal, I mean, the part of me quite liked the honesty and the rawness of it and the fact it wasn't a media manufactured answer. 
But you can't really do that, can you, Damon? No, I, don't, I mean, I think you can do that if you're paying, if you're in F3 and F2 and you're paying, you can, <laughs> you can, <laughs> you can actually criticise. But when you're in F1, you're not often paying for your drive. You know, you're actually working for these guys who are paying, like Honda, I think, probably putting a lot of money in for Yuki. But yeah, he overstepped the line, didn't he? And he got a bit of a ticking off, I heard from, mm. from Martin and also from, uh, from Jensen saying, that's not how you behave, son, in F1. It's different now. And there's so much more to learn. This is part of the new guys. It, there's so much more to learn. And it's a life lesson uh, is what it is. Once It's not about driving anymore. Once you get to F1, it's a lot of little life lessons and, and all of them have to go through it. Jensen was a master at it. He never said anything controversial. You know, he made sure he didn't create a rod for his own back. And some people learn the hard way. They offend people. And man, I, I have to, you know, I have to hold my hand up and say, I did the same thing. I remember once I got off a plane in Adelaide and I, I'd been wound up by uh, Barry Sheen on the way over saying, Williams aren't paying you enough money. You should be getting more money. And I stupidly listened to him. And the moment I got off the plane, I, said, I met Murray Walker, who did you know, come to interview me as I landed for this championship showdown. And I launched into, I'm not getting paid enough. <laughs> that was not a good way to motivate the team. Uh, it's not a good way. And when I walked into the garage, there was, there was Patrick Head. And he was going, what's all this about not being paid enough? You know, suddenly you have to face everyone in the team who th suddenly thinks, who the hell do you think you are? And, you know, it affects everyone you work for. They of course it does. And you just can't go public, no. can you? With any of this stuff, it's got to stay internal and thrash it out behind the scenes because once it's out there you can't ever pull it back damage you can't pull it back and uh, so you you can say sorry uh, which he did no yuki said sorry came out and he said i'm sorry I, I couldn't quite understand what he was saying he talks quite quickly but um i got the idea he was he was sorry and there are a lot of bleeps as well damon there's it's quite sweary <laughs> Well, that's the first thing you that do when you learn English. Right. You learn the swear words. Come on. Also, poor Yuki. He said, it's as if the team's not giving me the same equipment. I'm sure they are. Yeah. But of course, that the second part of that. They'll be giving him different equipment now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For all the swearing and all the slagging of the team, he is really funny. And that came across on Thursday when he was asked by a fan... What's the best thing about being a Formula One driver? And he said this. I really, really like the food and the hospitality. Um, I really enjoying uh, those food. Every hospital, like for example, Alphatari and Honda is really different. Japanese food in Honda and uh, Italian food in uh, Scudia Alphatari. So I can uh, enjoy those two different kind of food in one week or one day. So for me, it's the uh, most uh, good thing for me in the... I have a feeling if I'm going to eat as much as you, you can roll, you can roll me through the paddock. <laughs> well, Damon, I have to say, one of the bad things about COVID in Formula One is we don't get any free food anymore. We used to be able to wander in and out of the hospitality units and enjoy ourselves. Picking, now, picking our way through the paddock. Like, you know, yeah, the amount yeah. of rubbish I've eaten. And not rubbish, it's lovely food, but I'm just it's like incredible stuffing food. my face up and down the pit lane. Yeah. yeah, and now you, you're in the middle of the paddock drilling rain. You can't even get a cup of tea to warm up. <laughs> oh, it's awful. Isn't it? I mean, you do feel such a scrounger as well. You walk in with your microphone and everything and you sit down and go, can I have some of that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, another cappuccino, please. Thank you. You have to set yourself a target of not gaining more than five kilos each season, don't you? Otherwise, it's all going to go pear-shaped. Like your bottom. Pear-shaped. <laughs> hey, Damon, how is your bottom, actually? Because you've, oh. you've been riding a bike, haven't you? 
We're not I, going back I, to manscaping already, are we? No, I wrote up as you asked earlier about what I did, what happened on the weekend, what I've been doing. So on Sunday, I have to admit, I didn't watch the Spanish Grand Prix live because I was on a bicycle. Uh, and so it, uh, it was all about hundreds, wasn't it? Hundredth race for Max, hundredth pole for Lewis, and I was doing a hundred miles through Hampshire, and it was lovely, lovely, beautiful countryside. Uh, unfortunately, it was slightly windy, and it's a hundred miles. And by about sixty miles in, my backside was sore. And uh, but it was all in a good cause. It's a charity that I've been raising money for with uh, lots of other people who we, we basically used to do before COVID. We did this ride through f- from London to Portsmouth, get on a ferry, go to St Malo, and then ride from St Malo to car in a day which is 120 miles get on a ferry come back Portsmouth ride to there to Guildford and it's called the Halo 250 but it's been cancelled and the Halo charity is, is a learning disabilities charity which I may have talked about before um, which we helped set up so we couldn't do it so the guys that organised the ride came up with a, hey, the Festival of Cycling so we just said, look, if you ride 250 miles in a certain amount of time, then we'll count that towards our uh, our charity fundraising. So it's all on the it's all on the Virgin Money Giving uh, fund page. So it's, if you go to my Twitter stuff and my Instagram, you'll find the link, and you can donate if you like, or go and join in and just cycle 250 miles uh, in a in a nice easy week or two. <laughs> <laughs> instead of three days brilliant. it's brilliant Damon. <laughs> yeah. well done fantastic yeah. and i have to say your knees looked fabulous aren't they great i mean they've been yeah. I, they were out all day yesterday i was going to wear leggings but i thought no it's a, no no the out. world needs to see the knobbly <clears throat> knees a man who's probably well on a par with knees as knobbly as mine yeah well i'm i don't agree with that naturally one bit <laughs> uh, mine are too knobbly. Mine are you, too you knobbly. haven't you haven't got the bandy legs i've got i look like one of those you know that that tea advert with the chimpanzees on bicycles i look like one of them <laughs> You're too young to remember that. Uh, I'm just thinking about you with your bandy legs. (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant. Um, A quick word on Gasly, because I find it so strange that in this modern era of Formula One, that somebody can make a mistake that is so costly to their race of five-second penalty by being outside of their box at the start. Now, I know it's all about pushing it right to the limit and getting the very last millimetre that you can, but that's such a basic error, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I, I was saying to my wife, can I mention that I, my wife, I always ask Georgie when I'm watching a race, I go, okay, what do you think about that? Because she's so wise. And anyway, I, I, she said, well, that was, that, was, that was, what do you think? So I said, these are the little details that you obsess about as a racing driver and uh, parking, not parking in the box. Have they got, I mean, probably, how did he do that? How did, he, how did he miss his box? It's so, such a shame. But, you know, imagine you're fighting for the world. It's okay if you're like down the grid somewhere, uh, not the end of the world. But if you're fighting for a world championship and you park outside the box, well, I mean, that's not going to do you much good, is it? That's the way you got to think about it as an F1 driver. Everything is for a world championship. Everything counts. Franz Tost so angry after the race that he wouldn't even give a quote for the press release. It's just been, it's so sad, isn't it? Because that car was so good during mm. pre-season testing. And we all thought, oh, Alpha Tauri are really going to deliver this year. And yet they've just been on the fringe of points, haven't they, at each race. And there's just been a sort yeah. of catalogue of errors, really. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not about performance. It's been about mistakes, small, silly mistakes that have all added up. Yeah. Who was he angry with, incidentally? Was it with Gasly? Was it with the team? Or was it with the response of the FIA to give a five-second I don't know. Couldn't, couldn't get within 100 yards of him, Pinks. But I think it was uh, just everything. Yuki slagging, <laughs> Yuki slagging the team. Then, of course, him retiring with uh, whatever issue it was. And then Gasly throwing 
points away by doing the error at the start. And it's just just one thing after another. And if you look back at the races, Imola starting the race on the wet tyre, Yuki having a crash mm. there, him running into mm. the back of Daniel in Bahrain. And then last weekend, just not optimising the car. It's just frustrating as hell. I think also, Tom, you have to factor in Alpine, don't you? Because they've actually done yeah. a lot better than people. People had them written off before. So this mm. is where you, you just cannot go on winter testing. We don't, you know, so much expectation was built up. Yuki goes out, never been in F1 before. He's up there, you know, right up there in after winter testing. But he'd been using his DRS virtually everywhere. Um, you know, so you can fool yourself and you can raise expectations beyond where they really should be. And then all you can do from after that is fall down. And that's where we are now with AlphaTauri. Mm. They, they are basically back where they, 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 they are and they've got to come to terms with that. And he can cheer himself up by just popping back to hospitality for some free food. Yeah, oh, lovely. Yuki. Yeah. No, I was talking about France. Oh. Go and join Yuki in hospitality. France just eats toast. Yeah. Hey. Oh, God. Uh, he runs very fast. I ran the track on Thursday night. It was a Wings for Life run. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And, and France... Really good runner. He, ste wow, he steamed cute. past all of us going down to turn one. Maybe you're just very slow. Well, no, it got better after that, though. He, he then, we all then steamed past him going up the hill. That's what happens when you get older, Tom. It, yeah. Definitely, yeah, there's the hills. I thought it was a strategic <laughs> error. He went too hard too soon. A bit like you <laughs> yesterday, by the sounds of it, Damon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was a good, good Grand Prix. I loved, I actually loved every minute of watching it. I love watching where there's a brilliant um, interview that Martin did with Lewis about his pole positions um, mm. on Sky, which was really interesting. Quality masterclass. Quality masterclass. And yeah, he was I enjoyed very, that. Yeah, there was, a, there was that brilliant um, statistic from uh, Shovelin, I think it was actually, who said, he told Toto that if you put all of Lewis Hamilton's pole positions together and watch them as a show, it would go for gone for over two hours. Now, but think about that. You could wow. watch two. He can go home and put on. You invite people around for supper and say, "Do you want to just want to watch my pole positions?" And it would go on for two hours. Go on longer than the race than a race. Unbelievable! Wow. Unbelievable! I know Lewis is what is he, Damon? One of the most talented people to walk the earth. Yeah, yeah. He's virtually you know but, he's but virtually Christ-like. <laughs> He walks on water as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, never knowingly under hyperbolized. <laughs> but I watched that uh, feature with, with Martin as well. And I, I actually came away thinking that Lewis doesn't really know how he does it. it. There were a few little gems in there about making sure you, you, you change gear at exactly the right time. So you don't miss a thousandth of a second, but it's all about how I came away thinking he just, he just does it. He just, yeah, I know what you mean because he, his attention to detail isn't like others in terms of he doesn't walk the track. He doesn't use the simulator. You know, it surprised me that he's done maximum 20 laps on the sim in a year. And you would say, oh, well, it comes down to, you know, such a hard work ethic. And of course he works hard, but I think you're right. I think it is instinctive. It yeah. is. And yeah. I learned more about qualifying from what Martin was saying than actually what Lewis was saying in in a funny kind of way and martin hasn't actually had a pole position in formula one so it's just <laughs> it's interesting to it's interesting to to just hear 
watch Lewis, not really here, just watch him trying to articulate how he does it. And I think, it, as you say, Pinks, it's just so natural. He just does it. But, and and he, he said at the end, Tom, that, you know, you've got to find your own way. And he's found his own way. And that's why he's an artist, because he doesn't listen to what other people are wanting him to do. Um, so, you know, you asked him, he, he doesn't know what he does, but he knows what he doesn't do. He doesn't sit in a simulator for weeks and end, and he doesn't go and track walk, and he doesn't do things that he knows he doesn't want to do. Doesn't want to waste energy on. That's how he put it, wasn't it? It's was quite interesting. Yeah. Mm. So he and then a lot of drivers haven't had, I think, a feel that they have to do what the team tell them, and so they give in to pressure, uh, convention, and stuff like that. And Lewis has never done that. He's never compromised on. I mean, he's had with McLaren. There isn't. There hasn't been another team that has wanted to control the drivers as much as McLaren. But of course, you look at the great drivers; they controlled themselves. Lauda, Prost, Senna. You know, they weren't controlled by the team. But I think Lewis had to leave McLaren to get the level of control he wanted, didn't he? Agreed. Yeah, totally agreed. Yeah. Anyway, so they, that was fascinating. And uh, I, I, I loved listening to that. And I love, you know, I love the fact that Lewis has found his modus operandi and in it, he set the rules for himself. Because as drivers, it's very easy to get, to get pushed around and uh, you have to stand your own ground sometimes. Uh, talking of which... I'd like you to stand your own ground now with my favourite part of the show, which is Ask Damon. Hmm. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about our MO? I'm ready. I'm ready. Come on. Come on. Hit me. Okay, so we've got a couple of questions coming up. Here's our first clip. Hi, Damon. This is Jeff calling from Atlanta, Georgia in the United States. I was wondering if you had an opinion about why racers from IndyCar do not make the transition to Formula One very often, but it seems that Formula One drivers may move over to IndyCar when they've lost their seats. Thanks. Great question. Jeff from Atlanta. Fantastic question. Of course, it's following on from a couple of things that have happened, which is namely like Grosjean going over to uh, IndyCar and doing quite well, but also having lost out his drive in, in F1. Um, uh, will correct you on one thing because Villeneuve came over from Indy having won the Indy and then came over and joined me as a teammate. So Jacques Villeneuve came across the channel and did it in reverse. Nigel did it the other way. He went, won the world championship and then went over and won the IndyCar championship. So we've had a Michael Andretti. Michael Andretti, of course, but he didn't have quite a lot of success, such as a lot of success. You'd have to say Mario was more successful there. But, you know, we've also had a couple of comments made about the potential of current IndyCar drivers and their, you know, maybe they could come over to F1. And of course, Patrick, Patricio O'Ward or Patricio Ward, what is it? Pat, Pat, Pato. Pato Ward. Um, Pato O'Ward um, has been offered a test at Abu Dhabi because he's, he did a deal with Zach. If he wins an IndyCar race, would he get a test? So he's going to come over and have a go. And he certainly looks like his win in Texas was, was, fantastic very brave driving and so there's some talent over there there was a lot of chat after the second race of the season wasn't there st petersburg about colton herter uh, son of racer brian herter who won that race and would he come to formula one and he he went on record as saying yeah i'll come if uh if i can get a ferrari contract <laughs> actually <laughs> uh but i was chatting to grosjean last week actually and i asked him who has impressed you? What is the standard of driving like over there? And he said, do you know who's impressed me the most? He said, Scott McLaughlin, who is the Aussie supercar champion who's gone over there and finished on the podium in his 
third race. He didn't say Scott Dixon. He didn't say Pato Award. He didn't say Colton Herter, which I thought was interesting mm. in itself. Yeah. Is it a measure? That's the thing. I mean, I'm impressed by their opening. It's what a measure? Uh, the championship. You know, it's, is, it a, is it a measure of the circuits, the cars they're driving? Because F1 is, is looking for something which is, there's lots of really great drivers in F1, but the thing they're looking for is now coming down to the last couple of hundredths of a second between you and your teammate. I mean, it is such a fine margin, a relentless margin that you're looking for in F1. I, I do think that's where F1 is still the tougher test of ultimate driving ability. And Jeff, final thought is that I don't think the Indy cars themselves are quite quick enough. Grosjean said they're like a GP2 car, a Formula 2 car. They've got 40% less power. And of course, it's a spec series. They haven't got the high downforce through the quick corners as well. So it, it is a massive step from IndyCar to these current Formula 1 cars, as Pato Award is going to find out later in the year. OK, Damon, your next question. Hey, Damon. It's Umar here from Nottingham in England. Now, I've been a bit cheeky and sneaked in two questions here. So the first one, we all know how good you are on a race car, but you're also a pretty handy musician. So what's your favourite guitar? And following on from that, there's quite a few other budding musicians in the F1 paddock. So we've seen Lando Norris playing the drums and Lewis Hamilton playing guitar on his Instagram. So is there an F1 driver musical collaboration on the cards anytime soon? Absolutely loving the podcast, guys. Keep up the good work and cheers. Umar, thank you for that question. Yes, well, we had, uh, at one time, we had a kind of uh, impromptu band that Eddie Jordan uh, got going by having a truck that he brought to the British Grand Prix with his all his cousins from Ireland, <laughs> it seemed like, who were part, formed the backing band. And then after the Grand Prix, uh, David Coulthard would get up there with a, with a tambourine and Johnny Herbert with a triangle. And uh, and, I'd, and I'd get a few bars in with the guitar, so it was good fun. Uh, but all oh, rock and roll. I love yeah, Johnny had uh, exactly. a triangle. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was uh, whatever you could grab basically on stage, and uh, I've noticed that Lewis has been uh, promoting his um, burgeoning uh, skills on on piano and and guitar. His, his finger picking is quite good; it's coming along. And uh, and I didn't know that Landon Norris played drums, but it doesn't surprise me because they have to do quite a lot with their feet in the racing car and their hands. So he doesn't play the drums. Yeah. He did as a as a. A bit of fun before the start of the season. They were making this anthem together, him and Daniel, uh, for Daniel's arrival at McLaren. And he loved it so much, he then went out and bought a drum kit. But I wouldn't, I think oh. it's a bit of a stretch to yeah. say he's a drummer. <laughs> he's a drummer. <laughs> well, watch that space. Yeah. He's got time. He's still got time. I mean, it only takes a lifetime. I mean, the problem is, if you, you know, with social media now and Instagram, if you go on anything like uh, brilliant musicians on Instagram, oh my God, there are these like five-year-old kids who can play ridiculous stuff on guitar. There's so much talent out there. And, you know... Uh, I know where I fit in the in the in the scheme of things with musicians. I'm I'm probably about maybe in the bottom five percent. Uh, you know, if I'm lucky. That's not to say there won't be a band or there couldn't be, but uh, it, it, you know, you have to be prepared. I think you probably need a very good backing band, and 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 and, and they take care of the real music. Right. My favourite guitar is my Stratocaster, um, which I got. Uh, there's a long story to it basically uh, Leo Sayer was a, was a huge F1 fan and has been for years and he managed to get me a free Stratocaster can you believe it so I got this free Stratocaster which is electric blue beautiful uh, thing and then I um, this is where I'm going to name drop massively because I went to Jeff Beck 
for dinner once and he had a spare neck of his guitar lying around. I said, you're using that? He said, no. You, uh, I said, can, can I have it? So I took, I've got a Jeff Beck neck on my Stratocaster. I thought Leo Sayer was a big enough name. That was a hell of a drop. And then you just took it up another level. Well, I just move in these circles, don't I, Natalie? You know, uh, <laughs> and so I'll, I'll come to the other big names later in, in the year, perhaps. <laughs> but um, but um, yeah, so that was that was given to me. Uh, and how many guitars have you got? I'm uh, not that many. Only only one, two, three. <laughs> Five, six, and <laughs> um, there's some upstairs. Seven, <laughs> I've got a sitar as well. Well, can I can I just say, don't ever get a sitar. Oh my god, there's about a thousand strings on it, and they're always out of tune. And the pegs don't, they never sit in place. You turn a peg, and the peg comes out in your hand, and it's just a nightmare. I mean, there's that great thing with the um, concert for George, and it had Ravi Shankar came on, and he, in in the Madison Madison Square Gardens, we're talking about 1970 or something. And um, he spent five minutes tuning up and everyone clapped at the end of it. And he said, well, if you like the tuning up as much as you like the, the show, we're going to be going all right. But it took him five minutes to tune up a sitar. You know, oh, my God. Nightmare. Great question, Uma. Great stuff. So those were fantastic questions. And we love the fact that we can hear your voice. So if you want to send in some more questions, anyone out there, have a go. Don't forget, it's a voicemail to askdamonhill at gmail.com. I'm so impressed with you and your bike ride, by the way. I think that's... Uh, well, you, you can talk. This is a man who cycled from John O'Groats to Land's Hang End. On, with, but with, Damon, yeah, you've, got, you've got a couple of years on me. <laughs> I have. You're right. But I've always had a couple of years on you. <laughs> that's not going to change. If I, if I can just do a 100-mile bike ride in You have to warm up. Time. You have to do a little bit of exercise, you know, pre-training. You know, but you're I'm get, really you're, finding I have to warm up, by the way. My Achilles... No, I have to go and stand when I run the track. I have to stand on the edge of the pit wall mm. and just go do that sort of up and down movement. With well, it's my probably heels. the muscle. It's not the not the tendon. This is what everyone always does with tendons. They always think it's a tendon. It's not. It's a muscle. You have to stretch the muscle, not the tendon. Right. Well, I just need to stretch everything to be honest with you, and then I have to oh, do yeah. it again when I finished. I just can't nip out for a run anymore. It's the whole uh, yeah. uh, process. It's a whole process. Stop moaning. You wait till you get to sixty. I'm sixty. It's not over but it's, it's definitely getting more difficult. <laughs> I wish you were coming to Monaco because I always think the Friday of Monaco, the rest day, yeah. that's the time to get on a bike. And the roads are so much... Have you not found the roads are so much smoother in Europe than they are in the UK? I found them much steeper. Have you noticed that? <laughs> yeah, they in are Monaco, Monaco. They are yes. unbelievable. It's only, it's only uphill, isn't it? Basically, it's, it's, yeah. if you go anywhere, it's up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I think that's the end of the show. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could have chatted all day, actually. It's quite a good one, isn't it? Have we got to do the titles, isn't it? The titles now or something. Oh, yeah. I can never yeah. remember. What is it, Tom? The credits, the credits. Credits. Well, if I say F1 Nation is produced by F1, you've now got to say in association with Audio Boom, all right? Should we do that? So I say F1 Nation is produced <laughs> in association with Audio Boom. Something like that. And I say, buy F1. Buy F1. Okay, do you think they've got that? I think we've nailed it. I think we've nailed it. And you, Tom, are just so smooth. <laughs> you are a very smooth <laughs> presenter. 